Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 267, The Southern Expansion. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to David, Deborah, and Christine for signing up already. Oh, potent Athelflaed, made men's terror. You did conquer nature's self, worthy the name of man, more beauteous nature's form of a woman, but your valor shall secure man's higher name. For name, you only need not sex to change. Unconquerable queen, king rather, who such trophies have obtained. O virgin, O virago, both farewell. No Caesar yet such triumphs hath deserved as you, than any, all, the Caesars more renowned. That's a translation of a Latin praise poem for Athelflaed. It was included in the writings of the 12th century scribe Henry of Huntingdon. Now he was writing about 200 years after the events of Athelflaed, but the fact that he felt the need to include a praise poem within his history gives you a sense of how important he thought Athelflaed was. And the fact that there even were praise poems that were floating around about 200 years after her reign also speaks volumes to the admiration and loyalty she must have inspired. Now granted, much of that praise falls flatly to our modern ears. I don't think that Z would be all that pleased if I wrote her a poem where I was speaking about how impressed I was that she rose above her sex and attained the status of a man. If I said to her, you're not just a mere queen, you're a king, I don't think it would go all that well for me. But for the 12th century, a woman simply getting a poem like this would have been quite remarkable. And in the Anglo-Saxon culture of the time, being compared to a man was high praise indeed. And I wanted to share this poem with you, not just because it gives you a sense of the gravitas that Athelflaed carried, but also because I wanted to introduce a little nuance into your perspective of her. I've gotten a lot of people writing to me and excitedly talking about how Athelflaed was a feminist, or the first feminist, or things along those lines. It's very similar to the reaction to the Judith story, and so I wanted to address this tendency because the mission of the BHP isn't just to tell stories, it's to teach history. And history is an academic scholarly field, and as such, it's always striking a balance of critical thought and humility. The truth is, we don't have any record that Athelflaed, her daughter Elfwyn, Queen Judith, or any of their supporters were actually fighting for equality for women. Furthermore, we don't have any evidence that they were interested in addressing any issues that arise from unequal treatment of the sexes and genders. Instead, what Athelflaed and Judith appear to have been were noble women who were very good at navigating the male-dominated power structures of the medieval period. Now, are they fascinating people? Yes. Were they political heavyweights in their own right? It certainly seems that way. But as far as we know, they weren't feminists. And even their most ardent supporters, people who were so enamored that they literally wrote panegyrics for them, tended to praise them in ways that any modern feminist would likely rankle at. This was a different time. And while Athelflaed and others are excellent examples of astonishingly effective women, 
And while it's certainly reasonable to wonder how much more they might have accomplished had they been treated the same way as noble men, I think it's a mistake to talk about them as feminist icons. They wouldn't have known what a feminist was. And honestly, we have no idea how they would have felt about providing equal rights to all women. I mean, that would have included the serfs. Maybe think about it this way. Not only do I not personally own any slaves, but I'm also very much against the concept of slavery. I'm hugely against slavery. However, do you think it would really make sense for me to call myself an abolitionist? I don't think so, because the abolitionist movement belongs to a specific historical and cultural period. To lump the likes of me in with those who ran the American Underground Railroad in the early 19th century would muddy both history and the concepts surrounding the anti-slavery and abolitionist movement. That's why historians like to keep these terms within their historical periods. Feminism, as we know it, belongs to our era. And any movement that may have been happening during the time of Athelflaed towards gender equality would likely not bear a great deal of similarity to our feminism. Nor would any such movement share a direct lineage to our feminism. Ultimately, the past belongs to those who lived in it. And the humility of studying history means that we cannot always project too much onto these people. But with that aside, looking at this poem... I think it's clear that the stories about Athelflaed that have been circulating for a couple centuries were, well, quite positive. And while Edward's chronicle takes the tone of, ugh, why do you want to talk about my sister? She smells. Other sources indicate that she was a force to be reckoned with. So, let's talk about the age of Athelflaed. Now, Athelflaed began her reign marshalling her forces and constructing two fortresses. One on the Severn, along her Welsh border, and one at a place that hasn't been conclusively identified, but some scholars believe was just to the south of the Danish-occupied territory of Leicester. As we discussed last week, sometimes the Chronicle disguises military operations as construction. This appears to be particularly the case with Athelflaed. So, as a consequence... We're left just to ponder whether or not Athelflaed and her Mercian army fought with the Danes of the Five Boroughs prior to establishing her fortress at Shergate. Similarly, we don't know if she fought with the Welsh prior to fortifying Bridge North. But, while Athelflaed was reinforcing and likely expanding her border, her brother, King Edward of Wessex, was hard at work as well. And in particular, he was interested in plugging a gap in Fortress Wessex. You see, years earlier, a group of Danes had shown Alfred and Edward exactly how perilous their position was. There was an army that sailed up the Lee and built a fortification, and in the process, they took control of large portions of farmland just 23 miles from London. Now, Alfred had dealt with this threat in classic Alfred style by beginning the construction of twin fortresses on either side of the Lee. Basically, the plan was to build a fort around their fort. But as construction began, the Danes saw the writing on the wall and packed up and fled. Well, since Edward would have been in his mid-twenties at about this point, he was probably there for that. And it's pretty clear that he remembered those old days. Because while Athelflaed was building her fortresses, Edward was marching through his newly acquired territory. And it didn't take him too long to begin constructing a fortress on the north side of the Lee in Hertfordshire probably on the very same plot that his father had begun construction, but never completed because the Danes had scampered. 
And here's the thing about this fortress. Much like Athelflaed building at Bridge North, and likely at Sherisbury in Leicestershire, constructing a fortress on the Lee at this location was a provocative move. The position he chose was naturally defensible. But beyond that, it allowed Wessex to control movement along vital routes from the east, and it was directly pressing against the East Anglian borders. Alfred's children were digging in. They were guarding their flanks, and they were preparing for what would come next. Shortly after construction was complete, Edward began to make preparations for a grand campaign. The target was Essex. Colchester, Camelodunum in the old Romano-British days, was a major power center for the old kingdom of Essex. But more to the point, it was also dangerously close to London. Do you remember Haston's encampment at Mersey? The one that had caused so much trouble for Mercia and Wessex? Well, that was just to the south of Colchester. Colchester was simply far too close to be allowed to operate unimpeded. And currently, it wasn't just unimpeded. It was pretty much on a direct highway to London. Back in the Roman days, there was this old Roman road from Camelodunum to Londinium. After all, they were both Roman settlements. Well, that old Roman road was still there, and that had likely been a point of worry for London for quite some time. But now that East Anglia was cut off from Northumbria, it was a problem that could actually be addressed. Furthermore, because of East Anglia's recently weakened position, Wessex could do far more than simply fortify its position in London. It could actually press against the southern border territory of Essex. In fact, that was pretty much the natural next step. After all, leaving Essex to the Danes meant that East Anglian ships and any soldiers that they carried needed to only make a short trip across the Thames estuary in order to strike at West Saxon lands. But now they could deal with that. And so, in the summer of 912 or 913, King Edward marshaled the army of Wessex and ordered the advance. The plan wasn't simply to raid Essex. This wasn't a punitive attack, nor did they intend to gain tribute. Wessex was looking to expand its borders. This was a direct war to take and hold territory. And that meant that the tactics they would employ would be very different from what occurred in Lindsay, and they certainly would be different from a defensive war. What they needed to do was strike deep into enemy-occupied lands, weather whatever counterattacks came their way, and then stay provisioned while they encamped and fortified their position. And then they needed to hold that position long enough to establish the new boundary and eject the currently occupying ruling order. That would take time, as well as resources. And considering that they were looking to annex a kingdom, or at least part of a kingdom, raiding and looting in order to maintain their supplies probably wouldn't be on the table, because doing that would run the risk of inspiring a popular revolt. So right off the bat, a big issue for the army would be ensuring a regular delivery of food and any other mundane aspects of day-to-day -day living that would be needed on campaign. Furthermore, battle takes a toll. And let's be real here, just living life normally on the road, even that takes a toll. So for long-term occupation, which is what this likely would be, the West Saxon forces would need to be able to bring in fresh troops to replace any losses that they had due to sickness, injury, or death. 
Furthermore, don't forget that the Ferd only operated during a set period of time. And Edward had learned the hard way back at Farnham exactly how strictly the Ferd kept to those timetables. When their term was up, they went home. So ensuring that a path remained open for resupply, reprovisioning, and reinforcements was key to this whole endeavor. Consequently, scholars suspect that in addition to the West Saxon land-based invasion, there was also likely a corresponding naval campaign that cleared out any East Anglian ships from the Thames estuary and then patrolled the area to ensure that the army could be resupplied via the sea. So what Edward and the forces of Wessex were setting out to do here was an enormous and likely multi-pronged undertaking. So the Ferd, led by King Edward, set out along the old Roman road that led from London to Colchester. They were headed to Malden, a seaside town that was within walking distance of Haston's old fortress of Mersey. If they could manage to control that region, they would bring large portions of Essex under their control and significantly strengthen the border of Wessex. So the Ferd marched. But this is where the realities of small-scale warfare in this era set in. Because if you think about taking and holding territory, there's a good chance that you're probably thinking about something like the First World War, with clear lines, maybe even trenches, and large numbers of soldiers holding both sides. Well, during this era, control was more localized and didn't require huge border walls or trenches. What Edward and his forces needed was a burr. So when Edward and his army marched to Malden and encamped there, their efforts weren't over. Assuming that there was a naval component to this campaign, holding Malden would solve the resupply issue. But they still needed a burr in order to make this campaign successful. And ideally, it would be placed on or near that old Roman road. But of course, still be close enough to the harbor at Malden so that they could get resupplied. And what they found was the town of Whittam. And so while Edward and his forces were encamped at Malden, they were also hard at work about six miles to the north, fortifying Whittam. Now, the Chronicle tells us that the people of the area were under Danish control at this point. But after Edward's arrival and the construction of the Burr at Whittam, quote, many of the people submitted to him, end quote. There's no mention of a battle, no discussion of defensive maneuvers by the Danish lords in Colchester, nothing. But then again, there wasn't anything like that in the Chronicle for Chester either. And so some scholars argue that this construction might not have been as cut and dried as the Chronicle implies. But instead, Malden and Whittam weren't given up willingly. And the reason why the Burr was constructed, and the reason why those lands came under West Saxon control, was because the Danes in the area were defeated. It's possible. Though it is also possible that Edward's force was so large that the Danes in Colchester and other nearby areas simply didn't feel like they could effectively challenge Wessex in the field. At least not yet. But Edward wasn't just focusing on Essex. He also had his engineers and laborers hard at work in Hartford. The previous year, they constructed that fort on the north side of the Lee. But this year, they were constructing that fort's twin on the south side. Edward was completing his father's task, and in doing so, he was able to have far greater control over movement along the river. And meanwhile, Wittenberg would be able to defend the eastern road to London. 
Wessex was simultaneously expanding and bunkering down. At the same time, Athelflaed was quite active in Mercia. If we look at the Mercian register, we're told that, quote, This year, by the permission of God, went Athelflaed, Lady of Mercia, with all the Mercians to Tamworth, and built the fort there in the fore part of the summer, and before Lammas at Stafford. End quote. Okay, first things first. She wasn't taking the entire population of Mercia with her. That's just ridiculous. When they're talking about all the Mercians, they're most likely talking about the Mercian army. But that's actually really cool because right there, we have a clear statement for Athelflaed marching in the field with the Mercian army. Not ordering it, not saying go over there, directly marching with it, leading it. That's cool. But then we get to what she was doing with that army. And because this is about Athelflaed, the record gets a little twisty. We're told that she took all the Mercians to Tamworth and fortified the town in the early part of the summer, and then marched about 25 miles to the northwest to Stafford and did the same thing there sometime in August. And if this was just Tamworth and there weren't any other indications of growing tensions, I might just brush this one off. Tamworth had long been the seat of Mercian power, and if all Mercian effort for the last decade or two had been put into London, then Tamworth might have needed a bit of a touch-up once they were forced to relocate back there after losing London to Edward. But the thing is that Tamworth doesn't exist in a vacuum, and not everything was peaceful and wonderful during this period. And Tamworth was about 27 miles from Leicester, the same Leicester that Athelflaed probably provoked by moving into Shursby. So now, all of a sudden, the center of the ancient Mercian heartland, Tamworth, was dangerously close to a cold war, or maybe even a hot war, that was brewing with at least one of the five boroughs of the Danelaw. And as for Stafford, well, that was in a position where it could control movements towards central Mercia from any attacks coming from the north and west, since they would likely come through that route due to the fact that Stafford, like Tamworth, was fairly close to the old Roman road of Watling Street. So just based on the Mercian register, it looks like Athelflaed might have been digging in. However, there are a couple things here that cause some scholars to raise an eyebrow when the Chronicle gives us this basic tale of construction. The first clue that something else was going on here is the fact that the Chronicle explicitly states that she went with all the Mercians to Tamworth, meaning, of course, the full Mercian Ferd. Now granted, I haven't done citywide construction projects. The largest thing that I've ever built was a walk-in freezer for a German sausage company here in Portland. Long story. But even with my limited construction knowledge, I find it suspect that Athelflaed needed the full army of Mercia to reinforce Tamworth. For a construction project like that, having all of the army there probably would have gotten in the way and also would have been expensive to feed. And besides, there's a lot going on in Mercia that the full Ferd would be needed for, not the least of which was manning the various burrs that kept the kingdom, you know, safe. That was kind of the whole point of having all these burrs. You had troops all over Mercia and Wessex, ready to respond if needs be. But here was Athelflaed pulling them all out of their posts gathering them together, and marching with them to a single location. And doing that simply to gussy up Tamworth doesn't sound reasonable to me. 
Furthermore, all of these troop movements didn't happen in isolation either. Don't forget that just before all this construction and relocation happened, we saw Athelflaed ordering the construction of a fortress at what many scholars suspect was Shursby in Leicestershire. And that, combined with the strangeness of this military maneuver, raises the possibility that things had heated up between Mercia and Leicester. And that raising all the Mercians wasn't just to clear the gutters and freshen the paint at Tamworth, but instead, they might have been dealing with tensions or even outright war with Leicester. So all of that has given historians pause. And then you have the fact that some scholars have taken a close look at the various versions of the Chronicle, and they focused on the crazy dating that takes place, and did some analyses that, if we're being honest, are way above my pay grade. And they've determined that an event that version A in the Chronicle places in 916, and versions C and D place on 914, actually should be properly dated to 913, the same year that Athelflaed was carrying out this construction with, quote, all the Mercians, end quote. And that's critical, because that event likely kicked off this building spree. Here's what the Chronicle says, quote, In this year, the army from Northampton and Leicester rode out after Easter, and broke the peace, and killed many men at Hook Norton, and round about there. And then, very soon after that, as the one force came home, they met another raiding band which rode out against Luton. And then, the people of the district became aware of it, and fought against them, and reduced them to full flight, and rescued all that they had captured, and also a great part of their horses and their weapons." End quote. Did he catch what happened there? Leicester allied with Northampton and rode into Mercia on horseback. Now first they struck Hook Norton in the surrounding area, but that was just the first wave at Easter. Next, they met up with another raiding band and rode east, hammering the territory of Luton. Then the people of Mercia became aware of it and marched upon them and, quote, reduced them to full flight, end quote. And then they got their stuff back, as well as some horses and some booty. Now, the became aware of it comment certainly sounds like the Ferd of Mercy had been fully raised to respond to this attack, since I'm pretty sure that the people of Hook Norton and Luton were probably already well aware that there was an army taking all their stuff. So here we are in Easter, and they've raised an army and kicked the hell out of the forces of Leicester and Northampton. And then all of a sudden, in early summer, we have that entry of Athelflaed marching with all the Mercians to Tamworth. I don't think you need a secret decoder ring to see what probably happened here. Athelflaed just got another notch on her belt. And this time, we can be relatively certain she was out in the field. Furthermore, the timing of this makes sense. Because if they had to fight off an attack out of the five boroughs in Easter, then it wouldn't be out of the question that we'd see her still marching with that army in early summer, just as the Mercian Register states. And look at where she went to the Mercian Power Center in Tamworth, and also to Stafford, two locations that were quite a bit to the north of Luton and Hook Norton, but were also quite close to Leicester. If your northern border was porous enough that armies were coming out of the five boroughs and they were able to penetrate deep into your southern border, well, shoring up your defenses in the north would make a hell of a lot of sense. So, 
from where I'm sitting, it seems quite likely that what happened here was a two-pronged attack led by brother and sister. And a bare reading of the record for this period seems dry and a bit confusing. But thanks to the work of some remarkable scholars, what we're seeing here are actually an incredibly eventful couple of years that mark the opening thrust in a campaign to claim all Danish-held territory south of the Humber. It began with the victory at Tenton Hall, and right on the heels of that, Athelflaed seized the initiative and pushed northwest into the five boroughs and laid down a fortress. Then she dropped another fortress on her western front at Bridge North. The following year, Edward pushed eastward into Essex, likely having to fight along the way, and laid down a fort of his own. And then, at the same time, Leicester and their allies in Northampton made a sneak attack deep into Mercian West Saxon lands, which Athelflaed and the army of Mercia had to repel. And following that victory, she marched in full force back to Tamworth and fortified the town. Then she did the same at Stafford. And considering that she had the full army of Mercia only a few dozen miles from Leicester, I'm sure that the Danes ruling over the five boroughs heard the message loud and clear. Alfred might be dead, but his kids weren't playing around. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can find links to all our other communities in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.